There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... It's the 350th episode of Little Atoms, and we're celebrating the life and work of writer Marina Keegan with her book, The Opposite of Loneliness. Marina Keegan was an author, journalist, playwright, poet, actress and activist for two years a research assistant Harold Bloom and interned at the Paris Review and the New Yorker all before she graduated from Yale in May 2012. She had a play that was to be produced at the New York International Fringe Festival and a job waiting for her at the New Yorker. Then five days after graduation, Marina died in a car crash. In the aftermath of her death, while her family and friends grieved, her last essay for the Yale Daily News, The Opposite of Loneliness, went viral, receiving more than 1.4 million hits. Now a collection, The Opposite of Loneliness, Essays and Stories, has been published in the UK by Simon & Schuster. And so in this interview, I'm going to talk to Beth McNamara, who was Marina's high school English teacher, and Kevin and Tracy Keegan, Marina's parents. So, first of all, thank you very much, all of you, for, for joining me this afternoon. Thank you. Why are we here? Why are you in England? What's been going on this past week? Tracy? Well, we're very happy and excited because the book has been published here in England and we're here on a book tour and we're very happy to be able to come and share our daughter's words with um, everyone over here. What sort of things have you done, Beth? We were in a bookstore last night. We were at the Waterstones Piccadilly store for a reading with many people connected to Marina's life, Mm -hmm. as well as some question and answers afterwards. There'll be a small discussion group at Hatchard's St. Pancras tomorrow, and then we'll be in Oxford at Blackwell's. And we're obviously on the radio as well now. How have these been received, Kevin? How have they been going? They've been very well received. Uh, We had a a large group of, you know, over 75 people at uh, Waterstones last night. And we know we had a great discussion, and the people at Simon and Schuster, uh, you know, have been wonderful. Have uh, you know kept us busy, and uh, you know we're looking forward to uh, going out to Oxford, where uh, you know our daughter Marina actually uh, spent the summer mm-hmm. going to a theater program, and uh, it'll be my first trip out there, so I'm excited about that. Let's talk, Beth, about what Marina was like to teach then. So if we could spend some time, what we'll do is we'll talk about Marina first and then we'll get on to the book later. But, if Beth, if we can talk about 
her as a as a high school student first of all what was she like to teach she was an absolute blast to teach uh, i actually coached her when she was a freshman on my jv soccer team and then she joined my class her second year of high school and she would just be a bundle of energy coming into every single class um, one of the stories i like to tell is when we were reading the great gatsby and trying to figure out why george wilson's character goes on to kill gatsby is the right character for that and he's originally having a meeting with tom buchanan and i said you know what's going on there what needs to happen and marina said well, George didn't arrive. He didn't come there to bring cupcakes. And then went from there to her perfect analysis of exactly why George's character fits in, why he needs to kill Gatsby. And she was the sort of student who would bring in other students' intellects. Her energy, her enthusiasm, and her insight into literature were second to none. And she challenged me as a teacher. She challenged her classmates. And her writing was, of course, a joy to read, even when she was 16. It would be remiss of me not to ask you what she was like as a soccer player as well, as we're <laughs> as we're in England and, and people can't have listeners can't have failed to notice that her father is called Kevin Keegan, which yes. is a name that has a special resonance in this country. Uh, she was an enthusiastic soccer player, though she always had other things that she wanted to be doing at the same time. She was undefeated in answering Shakespeare trivia questions that would start the practices and determine who got the ball first. Um, but she was an avid player, and I think Kevin has something to add there. Well, you know, I, I must say that I was her coach, you know, prior to her, uh, you know, going off to high school. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would say that she was well prepared when she got there, you know, although it wasn't her passion. Her passion really was theater mm -hmm. and writing and uh, not as much sports. The world now knows Marina as a scholar and, and rather an accomplished writer, but tell us, Tracy and Kevin, about what she was like. What she was like as a daughter, I guess. What was she like at home? She was full of love for her brothers, and uh, she, uh, you know, spent time particularly with her younger brother, you know, helping along, uh, you know, with his studies. She was very lively. She won debate contests at high school, which Beth could tell you about, because, you know, we were constantly going at it at the dinner table mm -hmm. because, uh, you know, we would have some, uh, you know, some very uh, heated discussions over, uh, you know, the current events. And it led her to some very good positions, uh, you know, as an activist. She became president of the Yale Democrats mm -hmm. and went out and was very helpful to many causes and uh, was very proud of her because she fought for things that she believed in. Mm -hmm. She was always doing something. Every day was an opportunity for Marina. She wasn't one to lounge around and, and watch the television. Uh, she was either doing a project, doing something for school, or helping someone. Tracy, when did Marina the writer first start to emerge then? When did this passion for that first appear? Well, I think that before it was Marina the writer, it was Marina the reader. And she had an amazing imagination, and she loved to read and sort of came back from the first school that we would go to, which would be kindergarten at like five or six, and she's like, I can now read this little book, you know. <laughs> and she did sort of teach herself how to read initially, but mm -hmm. we love reading in our family. And so she would always be either reading herself, and then she would read to her little brother, and then she was able to take her love of reading actually onto the playground with her friends and they would make these unbelievable 
multi-day, you know, fantasy adventure stories where, you know, the slide is the shoot from the spaceship and this and that and the other. And then she'd tell me when she'd come home, this is what happened in the adventure today. So she was basically using every part of her life to be creative and to come up with stories and to kind of think of the world with a little bit more magic than maybe it has usually. Beth, I'm going to ask you about these debating societies and tell me about how she was in the debates. So this is a competition. All of our second year high school students are assigned to small teams on controversial contemporary topics. So it could be changing gun legislation or legalizing marijuana. The team she was assigned to talked about changing the drinking age in the US. And it's a a fun time at school because the entire 130 kids in her class were debating against each other in small teams. At the end of the week where a single class will finish debating, they choose their all-star and then all of those all-stars debate against each other. So she was the unanimous vote at the end of that as the top debater in her entire class. Uh, And I think her discussions with her father on their commutes together and certainly the Keegan family dinner table led to that, as well as just the fact that she was passionate and articulate and intelligent. She was also a force in our Model United Nations club at school, and other kids really looked up to her and noticed her, and one student said uh, she made a lot of people into who they are by inspiring similar passions in them. And I always thought that she should be a lawyer Mm -hmm. because, you know, she was a good debater and she did have many causes that she was interested in from, uh, you know, helping immigrants come into the country to a same-sex marriage. And she said that uh, she could make more of a difference as a writer. And she was right. But I think Tracy has a a great story about (laughs) her debating uh, and her being the winner of that and what she had said after. Afterwards, So the debate at the time was whether or not, you know, in, in America at the time that she was in this class, the drinking age is 21. And the debate was if it should drop back down to 18. And of course, because you can vote and also enlist at 18. And so she was on the side, well, at least at the, from my understanding of her argument, she was on the side of arguing for changing the drinking age back down to 18. And she won. You know, and she came up with all sorts of real reasons. And then we're driving back. She goes, well, I won. I go, well, congratulations. I said, and she goes, but you know what, Mom? I don't think we should judge the drinking age back down to 18. I thought it was so interesting. And, you know, so she was able to win the argument, but not necessarily. She done just as well on the other side. Yeah. But that's good, though. Just Mm -hmm. further evidence that she would have made a good lawyer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, Beth... We're talking about Marina at high school here. Obviously, there's the Yale years come after that. But how much, when did you notice the Marina that's in this book, the Marina that was going to be a, an accomplished writer? She was there all the time. Uh, certainly a slightly younger voice, but it's not astonishing at all to see where she went and where she took this language. She was writing at a sophisticated level early, but it was always an honest level. She spoke as herself, whether she was 16 or 18 or 22. And that's been one of the most glorious parts of being involved with editing the book and now reading the book. You hear her voice, Mm -hmm. and it's a chance to still hear her. So certainly she went along the curve further, but it wasn't a dramatic change. Kevin, you've just mentioned that, you know, she said she could do good as a writer and you know you wanted her to be a lawyer so many of the of the essays and stories in this book are about the title essay the opposite of loneliness talks about you know we're young our whole lives ahead of us there's so many possibilities 
and there's another essay where she talks about it's a shame that so many people that are graduating from Yale might end up going to work in finance when they could be doing something to save the world. So at what point did she have a definite idea of what she wanted to do? There's a story that Anne Fetterman tells, you know, in the introduction where she went to a a seminar. Mark Halperin Mm -hmm. is uh, speaking and tells the audience that it's very difficult to, uh, to become a writer today. And Marina was not very pleased with that, and you know she uh, immediately uh, you know puts her hand up and you know says, "Do you really mean that?" You know, and so she had the nerve to do that and fires off a, an email saying, that "Can't believe you know he means to you know, stop the death of literature." And and so soon after that, she you know was challenged and she wanted to prove everyone wrong that uh, that you could become a writer. And she, I guess, went back to her uh, performance poetry group and, and told a friend that I am going to be a writer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, she had some things published prior to the tragedy. And she, you know, had been writing in high school, had been successful in winning uh, some prizes and had been submitting some things for contests. And it was a passion of hers. Mm-hmm. And... And in a lot of the stories, you could tell that, you know, she wanted to leave a mark with her writing. So, you know, it was something that she was interested in pursuing, although she was trying to come to terms with whether or not that was a genuinely worthy pursuit versus doing something that would be more helpful to the world, where, you know, maybe you would be doing something for a uh, an organization that would uh, you know be be helping people you know with feet on the ground because you know she was a person of the world where where she really did you know have a passion for trying to help people directly as, mm-hmm. as much as she could I'm J. Courtney Sullivan. You're listening to Resonance FM, and this is Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. I want to talk about the years she was at Yale then, because she does pursue that career. You know, she interns at the Paris Review and the New Yorker. She's working for Harold Bloom, one of the world's most eminent literary critics. So let's talk about those years, Tracy. What sort of things, what else was she doing? I think Marina used a lot of her writing and also other forms of expression. She really was struggling with whether she could justify going into any kind of artistic pursuit, be it writing or playwriting or performing or any of those things, if she could really justify that and actually have it balance out with her her social and political activism. And I think that she actually used her writing as a way to explore these questions for herself, but also for, as you can tell now, her readers, because these were really big issues for her. Mm -hmm. You know, as in, you know, even artichokes have doubts. She really was like, I don't understand this. I need to understand 
why this is happening at my university. Why are all my friends going into this? It wasn't so much that she was trying to lecture people. She was trying to make sense of this herself. Mm -hmm. So for her, that particular article was her first piece of what I would call, you know, real serious journalism, which mm -hmm. really hadn't been a genre that she had explored extensively. And she was able to see for the first time, because it was the that particular article that was in the Yale Daily News, it actually had more people reading it off campus, you know, like 15, 20,000 reads across the country. And she started to realize my voice can be heard and can actually be an agent of change, of social good through journalism. And I think that was a real turning point for her where she started to really embrace the concept of using writing as a way to kind of creatively, but also to kind of make that change, you know, instead of being out in the fields, you know, planting the seeds. That was a big turning point for her, I think. Staying with the, the journalism idea, there's another essay, I Kill for Money, which is a, a profile of an, of an exterminator, which... It's a magazine profile. It's and I was I was surprised to discover that that was a high school project. How does that work? What do they have to do? So we ask all of our third year students, our juniors, to write a New Yorker style eight to ten page profile mm -hmm. uh, of, and the requirement is an interesting person at work. And often students sort of try to find the fancy or the famous subject, and they're better off just having the interesting person who they can spend time with. And Marina's little brother Pierce said, "You should do our exterminator," and he was this distinctive man who had an interesting job himself but she was able to add real poignance to it. Absolutely. Yeah. So it was the clear winner her year among all the kids in her class. Many of my colleagues and I have taught it since then though we've discovered the one downside is if you give it to the students too early they look a little horrified and say you want me able to do this? Uh, but it, it has a maturity in its research and yet a sense of humor um, and just in case anyone is confused, she really was doing the research on a real live exterminator in Boston. In the book, we covered the real man's tracks, and so it looks like it's set in Chicago, mm -hmm. but it is truly a piece she wrote when she was 17 years old in Boston. And it feels in its structure, and as you said, the fact that she gives a perfectly sympathetic portrait of the guy, but the sort of poignancy of his life really comes out. It feels ripped straight out of the pages of the New Yorker. It's not an imitation of something you would expect to read. It feels right. like that's where it, where it comes from. Right. And I recall when she was trying to come up with, you know, a person to profile. She's like, you yeah, know, Dad, who do you know? And it's like she was hoping for the governor or, you know, you know, some uh, famous person. <laughs> we end up with the exterminator, and of course she wins the <laughs> you know, first place. And one of Marina's, you know, on her list of things that are important to her writing was to have good titles. And, you know, I Kill for Money is certainly a, a stunning one, as you say. And, uh, but, well, you know, what I'd like to add is that we're talking about my daughter here, and it seems like, you know, what a serious young person who's had these internships and, you know, hardware. She was such a funny person to be with and a great sense of humor and always with a you know, smile on her face and just, you know, so much fun to be around. And uh, so she did have a lot of work that she left behind mm -hmm. because, you know, she was a very hard worker. But uh, but she did have a lot of life in uh, the 22 years that she spent here. So let's get to that point. And so it's May 2012 and Marina dies in a car crash. We won't talk about that, but let's talk about what happened next. What happens in the aftermath, Tracy? So Marina 
had wanted to be one of the graduation speakers. And so a lot of the students submitted essays for consideration. Hers was not chosen as the essay to be read out loud or to be spoken out loud at the graduation. However, it was selected to be put into the Yale Daily News print and also online. When she died five days after graduation, the essay had already begun to go viral. And when she died, it just blew up across the world. And all over the world, people were writing back and telling us or writing back to where they read the essay that the essay had actually made them change the trajectory of their lives Mm -hmm. and that they had actually chosen to feel they finally they felt imbued with hope with the belief that they could start again with the belief that it is never too late and it was as I said it was just really an amazing it was the only light in a horrible dark time for us and it was the thing that gave us the impetus to go on and then gather her other work and we realized that if it could actually positively change all these people's lives from all over the world that it was it was we were compelled I was particularly I was very much compelled to try and gather up her other work with huge help from a lot of her friends and of course, you know, her wonderful professors, Beth McNamara and Anne Vadiman, who really did help us to compile the other parts of her work to share with everyone. Yeah, Marina had hoped to be the commencement speaker, mm-hmm. and that's why she wrote it. And she then had it in the uh, edition of the Yale Daily News, which was actually passed out at commencement. So, you know, everyone had it, and it was, uh, you know, something that when I read at the uh, graduation ceremony, I, I myself was quite pleased and impressed with it. I you know, was, like, pretty much blown away with it. You know, looked at some of the others that were in it, and, you know, it stood out to me. And although, you know, Marina wasn't happy that she wasn't chosen, uh, she really wanted to be the speaker. And, of course, you know, looking back, if she was the speaker... This, you know, may not have, you know, happened the way it did. Mm -hmm. But when the tragedy happened and it just went all over the world and she became the ABC World News Person of the Week and, uh, you know, the hits on the Internet, it just started coming back to us from people who were touched by it. And it was, you know, not only people of her age group, but from all different generations who heard the, it's never too late to change and to, you know, imagine the possibilities and to make a difference in the world. And it was something that spoke to so many and they felt that they needed to contact us, you know, in our grief to let us know that it really touched them. And that made us feel that it was, you know, uh, something that we needed to keep pursuing to get more and more people to read some of her other things Mm -hmm. that had similar messages and had things that had hope and positive message in it and that's really why we wanted to pursue this and you know marina you know always wanted to be a published writer and so uh that's why we're here
You're listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny, and today I'm talking to Beth McNamara and Tracy and Kevin Keegan about The Opposite of Loneliness by Maria Keegan. And Tracy, you've just said at the end of that first part that one of the impetuses to start to gather material together to publish in this book was the reaction of other people to that essay, The Opposite of Loneliness, going viral. So tell us some of the things that happened. Well, we received responses from South Africa, from Asia, from the UK, from everywhere. And it was absolutely fascinating. A lot of younger people would say, I wish I'd known her. She sounds like she would have been a wonderful friend. I feel she knew me. So we had a lot of identification. We also had an amazing number of people who had been in the armed forces, who had come back from their tours of duty who were then kind of re-examining what were they going to do in their next phase of life. And this really spoke to them and kind of gave them the courage to... One medic came back and said, you know what, I wasn't going to, but after reading her piece about the opposite of loneliness, I'm going to apply to med school. And one person came back and said, I've just been, I'm a retired Air Force uh, major, but I'm going to go back and get my master's. And there was another person who was like a 65-year-old gentleman who... (laughs) from the middle of America who actually said, you know what, she's right, it's never too late. I wanted to let you know I'm running for Congress. We then had several people who, you know, said, and partially I think it was from reading as well, her, you know, even artichokes have doubts, where they actually really did take a look and go, I have been pursuing this career I fell into in finance or in, you know, Mm -hmm. in consulting, but... I am going to go and take a step back and I am going to start running that NGO I'd always promised myself to do. And a number of people who had been doing other things while really their heart was in becoming a writer or their Mm -hmm. heart was in becoming a performer. And they all agreed that, you know, they also expressed to us, we have the willingness to go forward and, and take chances and try this again. And so those really were the, you know, those were really the inspirational pieces that we'd heard from all over. And some of them we heard from moms who would say, you know, mothers who would say, you know, my high school or my college child is somewhat lost or not feeling good about themselves. And once I shared this with them, they they realized that they could start over again, even within their own structure of their school. So it's really been really gratifying. And, and honestly, it's what Marina would have wanted. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. 
Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Wanted to have happen with her life. Mm-hmm. To actually reach out and really be an agent of change for the better and to bring hope in people's lives like she has through these words. So that happens and you decide that it would be a good idea to share more of her work with people. How does that go about happening? How do we end up here in this room with this copy of this book in front of us, Kevin? What was the process? Well, firstly, my wife had the uh, the courage to go to the accident scene and retrieve her laptop computer. And uh, knowing that it was going to, you know, have a treasure trove of material of Marina's. Mm-hmm. And uh, I couldn't bring myself to do that, to be honest. But Tracy did do that and brought it back. And, you know, although it wasn't in any condition to turn on, took the hard drive. And, you know, we were able to get, you know, a lot of her work off of there. And, you know, she had really produced an awful lot of work for different classes. You know, three of the stories are from high school. Mm -hmm. Uh, A lot of it was done in a a course uh, at Yale which was uh, writing about oneself for mm-hmm. Anne Fadiman. We have a lot of that. There, you know, there's a lot of work that she's done that's not even in this book. So, you know, we had to select mm-hmm. what we wanted in the book. There's a lot of things that are not uh, that are not in here. And we had a lot of help. And uh, that's one of the things that's very gratifying is that when we finally put it together, it was felt so good because of all of the love that went into the creation of it mm-hmm. uh, from our friends and, and from Marina's friends. And uh, they've become family to us. I mean, it's like Marina's relationships with them were transferred to us in a little way. Mm-hmm. And that's felt great. And, you know, Beth is an example of that. And uh, Marina's friends that were her age, they've all been so kind to us. And so... We chose an agent, and then we were so lucky to uh, to partner with uh, Scribner, Simon & Schuster and, you know, moved along, and, you know, then an announcement, and Yale was wonderful to us, and uh, then we had these wonderful events and readings, you know, and the largest crowds that they've ever had, and, you know, Yale Bookstore, Harvard Bookstore, and all sorts of things like that, so it, it, it was something, and to kind of add on to what Tracy was saying in the reaction. To have a young woman that just graduated from Yale with her whole life ahead of her, you know, saying, you know, we're so young, we're so young, we have so much time, Mm -hmm. and then to be gone. That makes people think about their own life. What am I going to do? I mean, what do I want to do? And then to have her say, it's never too late to change, Mm -hmm. that really speaks to people. And that's why we heard from so many. And that was really a lot of fuel for us to really do this. And so, it, you know, even though we were hurting, that was what we needed to really get moving to get her work out there and, and knowing that it was something that she would have wanted. You mentioned Anne Fadiman, who's the, the Yale Professor of Literature. People in the UK may know her for her, her book Ex Libris, which is a big favourite of mine, so it's lovely to see her involved. So what you thank her in the acknowledgements for a lot of work. So, Tracy, what... What did she do? How did how did she help? Honestly, this book really, she was the shepherdess. She shepherded the, this book, and we very much 
deferred to Anne and Beth McNamara when we said, well, I know what I like, but honestly, we know that Marina would really want to know what you like. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So we put the selection process really back to them and said, what do you feel Marina would have wanted or what would you Mm -hmm. say should be her work that would go in here? They worked tirelessly hours, days, weeks to help edit, re-edit. It was very tricky. We had to make sure that, and Beth was great at this, it was, you have to keep Marina, we had to keep Marina's voice. But if there were things that were just like grammatical errors or, you know, spelling errors, they mm-hmm. had to be changed. You know, Unfortunately, she inherited my creative spelling. <laughs> um, so it was just that fine line, you know, of not changing what Marina said, but trying to just clean it up a teeny bit mm-hmm. so that she would be proud to have it in print. I'm Eric Schlosser, and you're listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. Kevin, you just mentioned that line from the opposite of loneliness, you know, we're so young, we're so young, we've basically got, you know, the whole life ahead of us. And all through this book, there are moments of seeming prescience. There's a lot of death in it. There's obviously an editorial process got into that, though, right? As you said, you've sat down and you've chosen what things are going to go in. So I want to talk about that, how... And we can do that in both ways. So, Beth, let's talk perhaps first about that more from a professional editorial perspective, and then we can talk to Kevin and Tracy about which were your particular favourites and what you wanted to go in. So how do do you go about sifting through all of that work and choosing what's going to go in there? Well, I think mainly it's a testament to what Marina was already doing and thinking about. The great works of literature are usually not about boring average everydays. Mm-hmm. People are taking on the real issues of life, which are death. And this shows the sophistication of Marina's thinking, and the material was all there and made sense. She would be wrestling with these issues as we would expect. And Kevin before pointed out that one thing that was inherent to Marina is that she was fun to be with. Uh, And I would absolutely agree, and I would also add she was fundamentally alive and Mm -hmm. lively and vibrant and so present. But I think that came hand-in-hand with an awareness that time is short and... She was writing about what she was thinking about, and she had a jealousy for those who had a chance to speak from the dead, and now she's doing it. But although you know she writes about you know mortality and death, she is able to have hope for the future, and there's always a positive twist in her writing, and that's what I find to be wonderful about it. And uh, when there's so much skepticism and you know weariness you know, out there, uh, you know, Marina's able to bring this all in and and say, yeah, there's this future ahead and it's bright. And we have to realize that there's a future and we have to be aware that, uh, you know, we have time, but that, you know, we have to leave a mark and you you just have to be, you know, cognizant of it's not forever. You know, you have to act now. Mm -hmm. And, And that's why I think as an activist, you know, she was always one to, let's do it, let's not wait. I mean, so she was, uh, you know, she was aware of that. I would say um, 
that Anne Fadiman made the observation, which I, I've come to think is quite accurate, that um, Marina was always asking herself, how do you find meaning in your life? And an interesting thing about Marina, she was very mindful, much more mindful, I think, than I ever was aware of as her mom, but which I saw in her, in her journaling, you know, afterwards. And in addition, she really observed, she goes, why am I so concerned, basically, about the fate of humanity? She mm-hmm. goes, I'm really concerned. And she actually wrote, and I think this really sums up Marina's core, just kind of like where she was coming from in terms of her perceptions of the world. And she, and this is actually a quote from her, because I don't want to mess it up, so I'm going to read it. She said, I believe in a certain intangible and unexplainable connection of humanity, a human pulse. To me, human rights are congenital, obvious. And that was really, really, she felt we were all connected, and she felt she was driven to help all of us. She actually asked her, why don't I pay, why aren't I paying as much attention to my, my friends, my family? I'm really worried about the bigger picture. <laughs> and she's questioning herself. So she's really mindful. But I think that sort of sums up really the core of her, you know, she really was very compassionate by nature and concerned for all of us. One of the stories, which is one of the seemingly prescient ones, Cold Pastoral, which is a story about a college student, a girl who's sort of on-off boyfriend, is suddenly killed and how she deals with that. And one of the episodes in that story is her having to go and retrieve a journal that he's written and reading that, being in the position of reading what he thought of her, but from the distance of that person now being not around. So, Tracy, that laptop that you went and went and recovered, some of this stuff was going to be the first time you ever read it. So what was that What was that experience like of going through some of Marina's writings for the first time? And was it sometimes difficult? Well... I'm sure it was always difficult. <laughs> With the framework that, yes, of course, it's difficult and beautiful. It's like this whole experience. It's bittersweet. Mm-hmm. But the best part of it is that I got to hear her keep speaking. With everything that I had never read, I got to hear my daughter speak again. And so in that way, it's great, you know. It's sort of like not getting to the last page of a book you love. You want to hope that there's one more piece that you still haven't read that she wrote. Kevin, what was, that, what was it like for you going through that material for the first time? It was, uh, it was very emotional because some of the stories, for instance, Why We Care About Whales, was an experience that that we had, you know, it's at my our Cape, piece in Cape, our Cape Cod home where, you know, these whales were beached. And, mm-hmm. and so, you know, I remember it vividly, you know, and talking with Marina about, you know, why we're not caring for, for humans as much as we are and why do people get all excited about, you know, whales and, you know, not for, for humans that are suffering. Mm-hmm. And uh, some others that had connections like, Hale, uh, you know, full of grace, you know, had a connection to a, a local church where Tracy was uh, directing the uh, Christmas tableau, and uh, there was, in <coughs> fact, a uh, backup baby Jesus and, you know, and things. So there was a lot of parts of certain stories that were parts of our lives, <laughs> and 
it was emotional to read them and see where she got pieces of her stories that were, were parts of her own lives. It was touching, but at the same time, it made me cry. One of the things it mentions in Anne Fadiman's introduction is that Marina was something of a perfectionist and never thought even the uh, the work she was handing in as coursework was necessarily finished. So what would she think of this book? She would be... Allow me to say that if she was here, she would be, you are not putting this, 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 or this. Yeah. She probably wouldn't have thought any of it should have gone in. <laughs> and I actually think that, you know, had she lived none of this may have gone in because she would have kept striving and she would have kept honing, you know, and I believe that, and that's part of why it's good because she was her own worst critic. She was the one, but she also was willing to put her nose to the grindstone and revise, you know, and not be done. And one of her notes, Anne Fadiman, you know, asks everybody, you know, I guess at the end of her class, all right, what do you want to work on in terms of your English? And her final note in all caps that Marina wrote to Anne is, there can always be a better thing. And I think that that's a really great, it's true. Mm -hmm. There can always be a better thing. One of the things she was trying to teach herself is that not to, not to become too cloying, not to think that it's too precious what you've written, and to learn that you have to release it in order to have even something better come forth. And that's why I think it she would be like, really? What are you doing printing all that stuff? I think she would have been okay with one or two pieces, but, you know. But we do have some other work, although, of course, not what we would have hoped for her. But we were careful not to change anything mm -hmm. or try to do anything with what she had written so that, uh, that it was all, you know, Marina's work and not, uh, not any changes at all. So... How is the book going since it's been published? What's the reception been? Well, it's been remarkable. You know, we did not expect the success that, it, you know, we've had with it. I mean, when we, uh, you know, had the launch at the Yale Club in New York, the people from uh, Simon Schuster, you know, Scribner in uh, New York told us, it's going to be on the New York Times bestseller list in the first week. And we were, like, shocked and it remained so for the first eight weeks. And, you know, then it came back on and uh, it was number two on Amazon in the first week. And so we were... Uh, but Kevin, know, we were re the reason I think it fell off is simply because I think they totally underestimated how many to print. So the book actually was, they had no other... We were all going crazy. We we're like, oh my gosh, there's, come on, you've got to get more books no out more books. There. Yeah, they had none left. So that was you had a, uh, a slight delay there. You know, the, the printers yeah. were catching up. And the amount of the reviews that we received from the various newspapers and magazines, and it was in like every magazine and newspaper and uh, in the U.S. It was, and the job that Simon and Schuster UK is doing mm -hmm. is uh, is just fabulous. And so we're very happy with what's going on here, and it's. I believe a kind of a, you know, a ditto of what's, you know, happened over in the U.S. and uh, we're very pleased. You mentioned that there is more. Are we likely to see any more? Yes, actually, there is more material. And, and I would actually invite your listeners to go to uh, com, which is the book website. And there they'll be able to find Marina herself performing um, several of her word poems, which uh, several quotes from those poems are actually found within the, scattered along within the book. And word is performance poetry. 
in addition to that, she's written a, a couple of plays, which we mm-hmm. are currently working to get produced. One is called Utility Monster, and the other one, um, it was actually a musical that she was collaborating on, which she was in the process of reworking with her collaborators. They were actually coming down to our house on the Cape the next day. And so they actually had to go forth. We told them to go forward with whatever they had at the time. It was scheduled to be performed at the you know the New York Fringe Festival, which they did an amazing job pushing through, and it actually did win the New York Times Critics' Pick and best new performance, I guess, or performance at the at the fringe. So right now that's also, um, you know, behind the scenes we're working on that to try to bring it out to the public. There is also other material that she's written which yeah. we're considering right. publishing. And we did have Utility Monster produced at a professional theater already. And uh, it was uh, done at Yale as uh, one of the only student-written plays done by the uh, Dramat, which is mm-hmm. the... Uh, the Yale Theater, and so it's uh, that's something that we're planning on doing. So she, you know, she was a like you said in the beginning. She had uh, you know many genres. She was fiction, nonfiction, a poet, a playwright. She, you know, was doing a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. And so, but she gave up the football. <laughs> <laughs> Tom Barbash, and you're listening to Little Adams, a radio show about ideas and culture. I wanted to ask just a final question of, of Kevin and Tracy. What would Marina like people to take away from this book? Once they've read it, what would she think the message they should take away is? Well, perhaps we can let her speak for herself. Beth, would you like to start? All right, so this is the opposite of loneliness. We don't have a word for the opposite of loneliness, but if we did, I could say that's what I want in life what I'm grateful and thankful to have found at Yale, and what I'm scared of losing when we wake up tomorrow after commencement and leave this place. It's not quite love, and it's not quite community. It's just this feeling that there are people, an abundance of people, who are in this together, who are on your team. When the check is paid and you stay at the table, when it's 4 a.m. and no one goes to bed, that night with a guitar, that night we can't remember, That time we did, we went, we saw, we laughed, we felt. The hats. Yale is full of tiny circles we pull around ourselves. Acapella groups, sports teams, houses, societies, clubs. These tiny groups that make us feel loved and safe and part of something, even on our loneliest nights when we stumble home to our computers, partnerless, tired, awake. We won't have those next year. We won't live on the same block as all our friends. We won't have a bunch of group texts. This scares me. More than finding the right job or city or spouse, I'm scared of losing this web we're in, this elusive, indefinable opposite of loneliness, this feeling I feel right now. But let us get one thing straight. The best years of our lives are not behind us. They're a part of us, and they're set for repetition as we grow up and move to New York 
and away from New York and wish we did or didn't live in New York. I plan on having parties when I'm 30. I plan on having fun when I'm old. Any notion of the best years comes from cliched should have, if I'd, wish I'd. Of course there are things we wish we'd done. Our readings, that boy across the hall. We're our own hardest critics, and it's easy to let ourselves down. Sleeping too late, procrastinating, cutting corners. More than once I've looked back on my high school self and thought, how did I do that? How did I work so hard? Our private insecurities follow us, and will always follow us. But the thing is, we're all like that. Nobody wakes up when they want to. Nobody did all of their reading. Well, except maybe the crazy people who win prizes. We have these impossibly high standards, and we'll probably never live up to our perfect fantasies of our future selves. But I feel like that's okay. We're so young. We're so young. We're 22 years old. We have so much time. There's this sentiment I sometimes sense creeping into our collective consciousness as we lie alone after a party or pack up our books when we give in and go out that it's somehow too late, that others are somehow ahead, more accomplished, more specialized, more on the path to somehow saving the world, somehow creating or inventing or improving, that it's too late now to begin a beginning, that we must settle for continuance, for commencement. When we came to Yale... There was this sense of possibility, this immense and indefinable potential energy, and it's easy to feel that that slipped away. We never had to choose, and suddenly we've had to. Some of us have focused ourselves. Some of us know exactly what we want and are the path to get it. Already going to med school, working at the perfect NGO, doing research, and to you, I say both congratulations and you suck. For most of us, however... We're somewhat lost in this sea of liberal arts, not quite sure what road we're on and whether we should have taken it. If only I'd majored in biology. If only I'd gotten involved in journalism as a freshman. If only I'd thought to apply for this or for that. What we have to remember is that we can still do anything. We can change our minds. We can start over. Get a post back or try writing for the first time. The notion that it's too late to do anything is comical. It's hilarious. We're graduating from college. We're so young. We can't, we must not lose this sense of possibility. Because in the end, it's all we have. In the heart of winter, Friday night my freshman year, I was dazed and confused when I got a call from my friends to meet them at Est Est Est. Dazedly and confusedly, I began trudging to SSS, probably the point on campus farthest away. Remarkably, it wasn't until I arrived at the door that I questioned how and why exactly my friends were partying in Yale's administrative building. Of course they weren't, but it was cold and my ID somehow worked, so I went inside SSS to pull out my phone. It was quiet the old wood creaking, and the snow barely visible outside the stained glass. And I sat down, and I looked up at this giant room I was in, at this place where thousands of people had sat before me. And alone at night, in the middle of a New Haven storm, I felt so remarkably, unbelievably safe. We don't have a word for the opposite of loneliness, but if we did... 
I'd say that's how I feel at Yale, how I feel right now, here, with all of you, in love, impressed, humbled, scared, and we don't have to lose that. We're in this together, 2012. Let's make something happen to this world. We've been celebrating the life of Marina Keegan and talking about the recently published book, The Opposite of Loneliness, Essays and Stories. And I've been talking to Beth McNamara, who was Marina's high school teacher, and to Tracy and Kevin Keegan, Marina's parents. So, Beth, Tracy, Kevin, thank you very much for taking the time to talk to me. It's been an honour meeting you. Thank you so much for having us. Thank you. You've been listening to Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by Neil Denny and was broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. You can find the Little Atoms podcast on iTunes and you can follow the show on Twitter at Little Atoms. If you'd like to donate a little money to support the show, you can do so at littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.